Well, thank you very much. I didn't expect everybody to uh, come back so quickly. You still have about 30 seconds. What I do want to do, though, having uh, been reminded that I haven't called you like this back from fellowship for a long time, it does remind me of what a good job Pastor Mike does and uh, makes me think of him. And it makes me really feel that we should be praying for him and Jamie. So if you'll join me for a for a moment, let's take a, a moment or two silently and pray for the family, and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer as we prepare for the uh, message this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have called Pastor Mike and Jamie and their family to our congregation. And we thank you for their service here. And Lord, we ask you this morning to be with them, to bring them your peace, your joy, and your healing. We pray now that you be with us and that we could worship together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to start a little bit differently this morning. I want to start with a case study. And in this case study, at the end, I'm going to take a survey. And I want, you to, I want to see how many of you agree with me and how many of you disagree with me. And um, we're thinking about uh, forgiveness and uh, broken relationships, broken relationships and forgiveness. So that's what this is a case study for. So back in junior high school, in seventh or eighth grade, a new, fa a new family moved into the neighborhood and I ended up being best friends with uh, their son. And uh, we were on the swim team together, and it turns out in 6th, 7th, 8th grade, we were the two best people on the swim team. And both of us were tall, both of us had blonde hair, and by the end of 8th grade, we were best friends. However, I have to admit that uh, he was taller than me, and his hair was more blonde than my hair, and he was a better swimmer than me. So actually, I kind of thought of us as, as the Batman and Robin, and uh, we were the two together. And when we graduated eighth grade, we were going on to high school. And um, I don't know how your high schools work here, but our high schools uh, in Evanston, we... Each uh, student was assigned a locker, and each locker had to have two people share. And so it was a big deal who would be your locker partner for high school. And so my friend and I, my swimming friend and I, we agreed we were definitely going to be locker partners. We were best buddies, we were Batman and Robin, and we would be locker partners. So that first year, we took a locker. Now, one detail about the lockers I have to tell you to to get the story, is that freshmen were relegated to the third floor, the top floor of the high school. And by sophomore and junior year, you could migrate down to the second floor. And what your real goal was, was senior year, you got to be on the ground floor, the first floor. And that was the thing to do. So, part two of my story. 
My sister and I, my family, I've probably mentioned several times, just two kids. My sister is two years, two and a half years older than me. So when I was a sophomore, she was a senior. And I remember at the end of freshman year, it was time to sign up for lockers. And my sister got into the line. I guess this was before. I suppose now you would sign up online. But anyway, she had to get in line, physically in line. And one of her friends, her one of her friends from grade school was with her. And I I don't know what her problem was with this friend, but uh, I think um, my sister had decided this friend was no longer cool enough for her. And so anyway, they're standing in line and her friend says, hey, let's be locker partners for senior year. And my sister panicked. And she said, no, I can't be locker partners. And then, of course, she had to think of a reason, an excuse to not be locker partners with this friend And she said, I've already agreed with my little brother that we'll share a locker. And so that night, she came home and she informed me of this little scenario of her standing with her friend, her supposed friend, and how I am now signed up to be in the first floor locker. Oh, now that is cool. And I just was so proud of myself. I had, I had to tell my best friend, I had to tell him that I was going down to the first floor locker. I was a little surprised because he seemed really disappointed. He seemed surprised that I would do that, but it was a first floor locker. Well, what happened was because my sister and that friend were in line together, they ended up with lockers right next to each other. And so my sister said, well, that was no good either. So before the first day of classes, my sister found another friend and she moved out of her locker and left me at this locker all by myself. Now I'm coming to my question. Did I push this? That's not where it was a moment ago. Yeah, I put my elbow down and it buzzed me, so that was... A shock. Okay, so my sister moved out of the locker, leaving me with a first floor locker by myself next door. This friend, I had known her friend my whole life, and they were so mean to me. Of all my sister's friends, this one was probably the meanest. Brace, face, four eyes, all those insults. And now I had this locker next door, but it was okay because it's floor locker. But my sister moved out. And here's the question then. I told my best friend, I said, hey, my sister has moved. I'm by myself. You can move down and we can be together on the first floor. And I thought that was the perfect ideal conclusion to this whole scenario. So here's the question. If you were my friend, Would you move down? He had found another locker partner. They were on the second floor. Would you have left that locker partner and moved to the first floor? So who would move in with me and say, hey, that's a perfect solution? Yeah, thank you, thank you. All right, and how many of you would say, no way, I'm not moving down? It just never occurred to me. What I found out, I had lost my best friend. We were never that close again. He said, I, th- I asked him to move in. He said, I thought we would be locker partners for four years. 
and we were never close again. This message is on forgiveness. And what I want us to think about is how many times do we treat God the way I treated my best friend? It might be slight. It might be subtle. It might be something we don't even really fully recognize how offensive it is. But the question is, how does God treat that? And does God forgive us when we offend Him in that way? And we're looking now at loss two. Last time we looked at loss part one. Now we're on loss part two. And what we are going to find here is Jesus has an urgent message for us. What I want you to recall, the book of Luke, we're in the middle of the book of Luke, but the first nine chapters of the book of Luke is setting up the story. And then at the highlight, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus knows the time is now. And he sets his face toward Jerusalem. So he is heading toward the final moments of his life. And in these few chapters, what we see is what Jesus wants to teach during this precious time. I think last January, a lot of you know, uh, my mom went on to uh, hospice care in Pennsylvania. And my wife and I, we got airplane tickets, we packed our bags, and we rushed off to Pennsylvania to see my mom on hospice care. And you can Imagine how precious those moments are. So what would somebody say in those conditions? I think that's what we're looking at in Luke chapter 15. There's precious little time to communicate. And this is what He wants us to know. And what we see is He wants us to know that the Father forgives. The Father is a Father of tremendous forgiveness. If you remember the first message in Luke chapter 15, there are a set of three parables. The first parable is the parable of the sheep. The second parable is the parable of the coin. Those are very short and quick, but now, today, we're entering into an extended parable. It's the story of the prodigal son. Probably the better title for this parable would be the parable of the forgiving Father. So let us read these verses together. Again, I want to get a sense that this is Jesus in His last few weeks of life. This is what He wants to say. And He says it to us again this morning. Jesus continued. This is uh, Luke 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After that, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Again, quickly, to remind us where we are as we begin to dig into this passage. The beginning of Luke chapter 15 says the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this is a message for sinners. This is a message of forgiveness for people who blew it, for people who messed up, for people who have offended God. And this is an offer of hope to them. And he then proceeds to do these three parables. Um, and I've already mentioned the sheep. If you remember the sheep, it's the, the compassion of the shepherd for the single sheep. And the illustration I used was the pastor that I had in Chicago who had taken his three children to Chuck E. Cheese's. And in the midst of the chaos that goes on in Chuck E. Cheese's, one of the children went missing and he grabbed one of them and he grabbed the other and they searched the entire Chuck E. Cheese's, couldn't find the third one, went and found one of the attendants and said, you have to help us. We're missing a child. And the attendant looked at him and said, but you have a handsome son on this side and a beautiful daughter on that side. Isn't that enough? Of course, I said, that is a joke. That never happened. But I think we can get the feel of that passion that we have for the one that is lost. The second parable was the parable of the coin. And there I gave the illustration that when I'm in an airport, I have my passport carefully tucked into a package, into a sack, and it's under my shirt. And every few moments, I just feel it. And I just get that sense of assurance. I still have it. And that one day that I had left it behind and I touched and there was nothing there, that sense of sickness, that sense of panic, that's the sense that we get. And now Jesus turns to this extended parable. And we're going to take two parts. So today we're looking at the younger son, and the next time we'll look at the older son. Because as we know, we didn't read the entire parable, but we read actually just the first half of the parable. So let's go ahead 
and now dig in. I think we're ready. Jesus told them this parable. This is now the third parable. And in each parable, as we said, each parable follows the same pattern. Something is lost. There's a search. There's looking for it. And then there's the locating it. And that's when there is a joy, there is joy and celebration. And so uh, verse 11, we go on. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me a share of my estate. I want us to be sure we understand it's not just our culture where this is inappropriate. That was extremely inappropriate in their culture. Maybe more so. So this is very offensive and very insulting to the father. And because the boy is not married, we can assume he's probably a teenager under 20 years old, and he has the audacity to go to his father and say, I think I want to take my share and run. Father loved his son, but he let the son make his own decision. Verse 13, not longer after that, the younger son got together all that he had. So that probably means that he uh, converted whatever land or cattle or whatever into cash. So he gathered everything together, uh, probably converted it to cash, and he picked it up and he went off. And now he sets off and, here's a question for you, now he is free, right? Now he is free. Free from the bonds of his father, of his religion, of his faith, of his family, of his culture, of his customs. He is a free man. There's a contemporary story of a prodigal son. I I don't really want to, to talk about this story because it is contemporary, but I think it's already so wildly public. It doesn't really make any difference if I bring up the name or not. But I think quite well known is one of John Piper, the great uh, pastor uh, from Minnesota. One of his sons is a prodigal and has... Uh, Actually, he left the church and then there was a reconciliation in his early 20s and then more recently he has left again. And it was a couple years ago I saw somewhere that his son who was about 40 years old was making YouTube videos, anti-Christian YouTube videos. And I thought, well, actually that might be kind of unusual, right? Because someone, you know, he's he's older and uh, probably inherited a lot of intelligence and has a lot of insight about the church, I imagine. So I clicked into a couple of his YouTube videos and it was quite amazing because there he was, John Piper's son. He was wearing long hair, about 40 years old. He's walking through the streets, making videos of himself, giving all these opinions about the church. And what I was stunned about is that he had no insight He said, I I mean, you can guess what he said. He said, how do we know that the Bible is reliable? How can Jesus be the only way? It was the same old thing that you hear all the time. He's got the long hair flowing and and, and, and the coming on of wrinkles. And it just, one of the commenters on one of the videos said, it's so sad. He looks like a rebellious teenager, a 40-year-old 
rebellious teenager. And he's making YouTubes of himself, proudly showing the world his lostness. I have to imagine if there'd been YouTube, this guy would be proudly showing, yeah, I'm free. Look at me now. Look at me now. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And we have to remember that pigs, of course, it's just dirty, filthy work that no one would want to do. And a few months ago, he was rich. And now he's just covered with mud and pig filth, pig slop. But more than that, that is ceremonially, we want to be clear, ceremonially unclean for a Jewish person. He is at his bottom. You know what I think of when I saw this? I thought this one, he wouldn't make a YouTube video of this. He'd make a TikTok video. And I feel like I've seen these TikTok videos where it seems like there are these pathetic people who have just reached the complete nadir of their existence. And they're making YouTube uh, TikToks celebrating. I'm free. Celebrating how they don't care about teachers or schools or parents or churches or this. And they are proudly beating their chest. Announcing their freedom when it looks to me like they're groveling in the filth. It is so sad. There he is. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But, not surprisingly, no one gave him anything. What will happen if he comes to his senses? If he realizes how he's put himself into this position? When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. Verse 18. What's he going to do? He says this, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Jesus wants his listeners to hear this story. This is urgent for him to communicate what's about to happen. And I think we're so familiar with the story that we lose the power of it. We lose the impact of what's going on. We said last time that what the Jewish people would have expected is that God the Father 
would forgive somebody, if they came back and they confessed their sins and they bowed down and begged for forgiveness, that yes, God would forgive them. But Jesus wants to say something else. Jesus wants, not something else, He wants to add to that picture. He wants to enhance that picture. And one of the things that uh, helps me envision this scene is I'm imagining the Son coming from a distant land where He's been away for several years, where He squandered His Father's wealth, a third of His kingdom. He squandered that and wasted it. Now He's coming back in rags and filth. And I imagine the Jewish father standing there. And I actually am more familiar with Chinese culture as probably most of you are. And so I put up here a picture of a uh, Chinese uh, gentleman in one of his robes. And as I understand, uh, Chinese culture and Jewish culture would be very similar on this point. Somebody wearing the long robes of Chinese culture and traditional dress would be somebody who is very proper. They wouldn't go against cultural norms. But what does this Jewish father in his long formal robes, how does he respond when he sees his son appear on the horizon? The first thing he does is he rolls up his robe. This fellow would never do that. You don't expose your naked legs in public. That's simply not dignified. Can you imagine your, your father, your grandfather, dressed in his formal attire, in his formal robes, and all he's pulling it up, and there are his legs. Why does he do that? Because he wants to sprint to his son. This fellow, you wouldn't see him running in public. It's not dignified. It doesn't look right. But Jesus wants to say something powerful. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Notice, interestingly, he recognizes that by leaving his father, he has left the heavenly father. And so his confession is both to his dad and also to the faith of his father. I have Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I love this. The father, you know, he's got this little, little thing memorized and he's probably been practicing in his head. He's got to get it out quickly before the father pops him across the head or something. And so he's spitting this out. And the father will have none of it. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. He's pulling him up. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. The robe, a mark of distinction. 
that you're part of the family. A ring signifying authority. He's restoring the authority that this son has to be part of that family. And shoes. Only the slaves were barefoot. A son of the family had sandals. So they put those on to represent that he is the rightful heir of his father. Jesus wants us to hear this story. And He wants us to know no matter how we have offended Jesus, if we are willing to turn back, God is watching. And God is desiring to race out to us and to meet us. Is it ever too late? It's never too late. Turn back. Turn back to God. So we said there's three parts. There's a, something lost. Then that something is located. It's found. And then it's time to celebrate. And again, when you found that lost sheep, you celebrate. When you find that coin, you celebrate. And now that this son who was dead is now alive, they want a celebration. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Thinking about fun things that we that we're part of, in our life. So I was thinking about things that, that maybe some of our church people do. Uh, maybe some of you. Uh, some of these I do. Um, but what are, different, what are different groups that we're part of? So we're all part of Generations Church, but what other groups are we part of? And uh, so let me go through some groups that you might be part of that group or similar groups. And what I want to ask is, how is Generations Church, similar or different from those groups. So one kind of group I thought of was a social club, a country club, maybe a golf club. I'm allergic to grass, so golf never sounded like a good idea to me, hitting a grass into my face. But uh, what kind of clubs are those? Those are fun. Those are relaxing. Are we like that? How about a self-improvement club? Here I was thinking maybe a knitting club where you learn how to knit, you learn a skill. I was thinking of a hiking club. That's something good. It seems everybody's getting exercise. You're getting out with other people. Seems like a good thing. Some sort of self-improvement, some sort of self. Is our church like that? How about a serving club where we serve together? Here I thought of, how about dog adoption? Like some sort of adoption center where we take in stray dogs and we, we get them healthy and we send them out for adoption. Is our church, are we like that? Then I thought of an even better kind of club. More, 
more meaningful. How about a club or a group like Alcoholics Anonymous? Where people join and they have their lives transformed. They go from an addiction that they can't control, that has control on them and it's destroying them and they are made whole. They're given that opportunity to be made whole again, to get their life back. Do any of these sound like the role of our church? Let me suggest that at our best, we would be all of those things. At our best, we would be better than Alcoholics Anonymous where we come together and share our lives and bring transformation. But let me suggest even more than that. That if Think of an AA meeting where somebody comes in and they get their one-day token, they get their one-week token, one-year token. I was recently at an addiction meeting and there were people getting 30-year tokens. And we clapped and we celebrated for them. What greater celebration than that? 30 years sober. Let me suggest that when we celebrate baptism at our church, it is a greater celebration because we are transforming people in this life so that they can be new, they can be different, they can live a life with purpose and meaning and peace and joy. But we're transforming heaven. There's a transcendent transformation. I'm so glad we're doing baptism in a couple weeks. Look forward to that. There's no greater celebration. That's what Jesus wants. And if you recall, what we said is that as the church celebrates a baptism, God, the angels in heaven are celebrating. And at the same time, God Himself celebrates. Let's pray together. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we ask You to remind us once again that You are a God who forgives that You are a God who is with us. Lord, we thank You that when we're lost, when we offend You, we thank You that although Your heart is broken, You never give up and You continue to search and look. And as soon as we are willing to turn, as soon as we are willing to turn our face towards You, You race out to embrace us and to pull us up out of the mud to take us out of the muck, to take us out of our sin. And you desire to put a robe around us, a ring on our fingers, sandals on our feet. And Lord, we thank you that we find that when we are in you and in the church and in our families, Lord, we thank you that we find we are free. We are truly free. For a world that is broken, 
for a world that seems to celebrate their brokenness. Lord, I pray that this church would be salt, that this church would be a beacon, would be a light to your truth, to your to true freedom in you. I pray for each one here this morning that we would make our relationship right with you again, right now. That we would confess how we have offended you. We would claim again the blood of Jesus Christ. and that we would receive forgiveness, and that You would embrace us. And Lord, I pray that as we take communion, it will truly be a magnificent celebration of the forgiveness of the Father. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.